That we are dealing with a crisis of character in the society. And this morning we are going to see in Ephesians chapter 4 that Paul is warning us. Paul is pleading with us. Paul is coming and advising us and directing us to not have a crisis of character in the church. There are some times that you will hear people say the reason they don't go to church is because of the people that are in the church. And you will have other people that will lament and say that they used to go to church, but they don't go to church anymore because the church is full of hypocrites. And they have this idea that the reason they don't go to church is because of the way they were treated when they were in the church. And I would, I would submit to you this morning that we today, even in the church, not just here at First Baptist, but we in a church writ large, we have a character, or we have a, sorry, a crisis of character. Because we come together on a Sunday morning and we say, here we are, kumbaya, we're so happy to be here, and yet the world sees something different from us tomorrow. And at the baseball field, in the football stadium, in our children's events, and in our workplace, in our businesses. This morning I want to speak to you on the importance of character. Paul has been talking about here in Ephesians chapter 4. Last week we looked at these daily choices. Paul was more looking at the individual and looking at the choices they made to grow. We've been talking for the last several weeks about how do we grow as a church? How do we grow as an individual? And especially during this time, you may be sitting here thinking, well, Spence, this is supposed to be like a Christmas theme type of idea. Spence, aren't you supposed to talk about Christ? Yes, we are supposed to talk about Christ, but it's not relegated to just December. We're supposed to be talking about Christ 12 months out of the year. We're supposed to be talking about Christ 52 Sundays out of the year. We're supposed to be talking about Christ all of the time. And the most effective thing we can do for our witness and for our proclamation that Christ has come, died, been buried, rose again, now stands at the right hand of the Father, the most effective thing we can have for the proclamation of what Jesus Christ has done for us and for this world is through our daily life and through our character. As a believer in Jesus Christ. So Paul is going to talk about our character. Last week he was looking at the individual. Last week he was looking at you on a a personal level and how it is that you grow. This morning he is going to shift uh, gazes, if you will. And he's going to move on there to chapter 4 and verse 25. And he's going to talk about uh, to the congregation. He's going to talk about our character. And he's going to talk about how our character counts. Because there is a world outside that is watching us. And he is going to say, church, no matter what the season is, whether it's Christmas or whether it's Easter, we need to understand that our character as a church and as believers in Jesus Christ, it counts. And you see that at the top of your notes, I put, the, uh, I put a little phrase there, that it's hard to outgrow our character. And what I mean by that is the status or the state of our character will be indicative of the level of our growth. And if we want to grow as a church spiritually, if we want to grow as a church in the image of Christ, if we want to grow as a church in our knowledge, in our faith of Jesus Christ, character is going to play a role in that. So here in verse 25 down through verse 32, Paul is going to talk about the character of the church. He's going to talk about the character of the congregation. Now for the sake of time, I've put down just four different items that I want to point you to that Paul is going to talk about. You could probably find more if you were to cut it your way, but I'm just going to point you to some areas, some, some, some characters if you will. Now a character would be defined as a, a trait, a, a quality, Some type of way of being described. It's an action. It's something that marks you. 
right before the service, they recommended that next year, this time for Christmas, I should get up and I should have a green tie on and I, I should have a, a jacket with all kinds of candy canes littered upon it. I guess they want me to look like a leprechaun or an elf. I don't, I don't know. But they said, you need to look more festive for the season. And so one of them said, hey, we're just going to put this there as kind of like a, uh, hey, you see, now he's look, looking the point at character, if you will. But everything and every one of us in this room is marked by something. And Paul's coming into this passage this morning and he wants to ask us, what marks us as a church? Now I want you to start there in verse 25. If you'd read along as I read aloud from my, from my copy, I just wanted you to see these four characters that I think Paul points us to that matter, especially in the days in which we live, especially in light of this Christmas season, especially in the, mat, the, the, the fact that the entire world is looking at the church these days because they know it's Christmas, they have an idea what Christmas is about, but what kind of message are they getting from us about what we think about Jesus Christ? The first character that Paul talks about is our speech. Notice there in verse 25, he continues from where he picked up last week or left off last week and he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one, or members one of another. Then you skip down to verse 29 and he talks about our speech again. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul wants to talk about the character of our speech. Paul wants to talk about the things that come out of our mouths. Paul is coming in and saying when it comes to the character of the church and when it comes to the witness and the testimony of the church, our speech matters. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6 says, Let our speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how we ought to answer each person. In other words, Paul is trying to remind us that there should be truth in what we say. When we speak, there ought to be honesty, there ought to be truthfulness, truthfulness in our claims and in our excuses. How many people come into the church and you're not fine? You're not doing well. You're struggling spiritually. You're you're dealing with your attitude. Your health's a little bit rocky. You feel guilty about something that only you know about. And you come into the church and people say, well, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And this is a place that we can come to tell, I'm, I'm hurting, I'm broken, I'm tired, I, I need encouragement, I need support, I need you to love on me, I need you to pray for me, I need you to help hold me accountable, I need you to be my friend dis- despite the dirty laundry and the muck in my life, I need you to come, and yet when we come in, into our speech, we have this idea that says, well, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, and then we get on Facebook and just blow it all up. And Paul wants us to understand that when it comes to our relationship with one another and when it comes to our witness before the world, they need to see in us such a truthfulness that when we come in and say Jesus Christ is the Lord of our lives, it is evident in our daily lives. They need to see this idea that we don't come in and try to make excuses for why we're not doing what God has called us to do. So Paul says there should be, there must be put away the falsehood from each of you and speak 
truth. In verse 29, he talks about this idea of grace. And he's saying, when you speak, let it be full of grace and growth. Let there be that idea of grace and growth in our conversation. So when people hear us talking, I am trying to build you up. You are trying to build me up. We are trying to build up one another. Let them hear from our speech who we are in Christ. Yeah, so many times we can get consumed with talking about a lot of things that have no eternal impact. No eternal consequence. I have my own personal opinions when it comes to this political season we're in. We were teasing this morning, Ryan and I, about the Dominion voting systems and some of the, the, the controversy going on around that. And you can have your opinion, I'll have my opinion, but I'm going to tell you that we can argue till the cows come home, donkey versus elephant. We can argue till the cows come home, Biden versus Trump. And I'm going to tell you, 20,000 million years from now, it's not going to make a difference. The things that are going to make a difference 20,000 million years from now is where people are spending their eternity at. So instead of us getting all partisan and instead of us trying to go to the mat and trying to go and trying to right somebody, right somebody's wrongs on social media or start picking those fights, maybe we should be thinking about the words that come out of our mouth. Do they point people to Jesus or do they point people to partisan? And he's talking about our speech. He's saying this character of speech should be about us that when we speak, people hear us point thoughts, ideas, hearts, and minds to Jesus Christ. But he also talks about our attitude. You see there in verse uh, verse 28, if you will, or verse 26, he talks about the attitudes that we have. In fact, he says there in verse 26 as we continue on, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard that verse quoted to me so many times. Now, I gotta be careful because my mother-in-law and father-in-law are here this morning. And they have been the best mother-in-law and father-in-law I've ever had. (laughs) I mean, they they are the best in-laws that I have ever had my entire life. And so i got to be really careful. And they may not know this yet, but there have been at least one time that I can think of that their daughter and I had a disagreement. And you know, you get in that argument, that disagreement... And you have that thought in your head, well, we're not supposed to let the sun go down in our anger, so therefore we can't go to bed till we solve this. I don't think that's what this is about. <laughs> I know that's how it's being used. I know that it's how it's a lot of time repeated. I'm just telling you, I don't think that's what this is about. Because look at what the text says. He says there in verse 28, be angry and do not sin. So you notice how the structure of the language is. He says, be angry. So it's not the matter that it's a sin to be angry. What a matter, what the sin is, is what happens with the anger. I tell our boys from time to time, you can be mad, you just can't throw a fit. There's nothing wrong with being angry, but it's what the anger does to you. So he says, be angry, but do not sin. Then he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So does that mean that I can't go to sleep if I'm mad at my spouse, or if I'm mad at you, or if I'm mad at a football game, or if I'm mad at something else? That means I can't go to sleep. I don't think he's saying that you got to have this thing resolved before the sun goes down, because let's just be honest. Sometimes you're not going to have resolution on your schedule. I would love if it would be a matter of, hey, we got 15 minutes before sundown. Jalen, you better say sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But I hope that every single one of you know in this room, that's not the way that works. 
But I do think what Paul is trying to talk about is he's trying to talk about our attitude. He's trying to talk about the attitude that we have when we are wronged, when we are offended, or when we get angry. Notice he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. But he doesn't stop there. There's a comma, and he goes on in verse 27, and he says, and give no opportunity to the devil. Why is our attitude such a big deal, preacher? Our attitude, especially our anger, is such a big deal because anger is often the starting point for our bitterness. When we get anger, when we get, when we get angry, when we get mad, when we have these things about us, when we dwell on them and we let them fester and we let them just sit there and we just, dwell, uh, we, we just ponder on them, we think about them and say, well, he offended me or she offended me and they did this and we just sit there and we just drum this thing up and the next thing you know, it's twice the size that it started and then we start getting this bitterness and then we start getting this resentment and the next thing you know, the anger has consumed us instead of the spirit consuming us. So what Paul says is your attitude, your, your attitude matters because your attitude is part of your character. And when you get angry, the danger is not the fact that you got angry. The danger is, is what Satan is now allowed to do with your anger. How many people today aren't in the church because they're still upset, hurt, angry, bitter, resentful about something that took place within the church? How many people today are saying, I will not go back to church because of what they did. Paul says there is nothing necessarily sinful in being angry. It's just knowing that when you get that anger and when you let that anger take root and it's days and days and sundowns and sunrises and over and over and over and that thing just dwells and that thing just festers and that just thing goes to seed, if you will, then that bitterness becomes a poison that consumes the possessor. Because the next thing you know, I'm mad at you and you don't even know I'm mad at you. I've been mad at you in six months and you had no idea I was mad at you. And I'm just sitting back going, oh, I'm mad. I'm mad at them. And next thing you know, who's really the one that's being affected? Me. And it's part of our attitude. And it's part of our character. And we have too much of that going on in the church today where people get upset and people har- harbor bitterness or resentment or anger and they let these things take place in their life and Satan is then allowed to use them against us and use them to leverage us out of the church. The same thing happens when it comes to our sin. We commit a sin before God. We fail. We we do something that we know we're wrong and then the Holy Spirit comes in convicts us. I get mad at myself because what I did and instead of repenting and confessing and dealing with that conviction and that anger even at myself I just pull back I isolate myself and I never address my guilt before God so it's not just anger with other people can sometimes be angry with yourself because you've never forgiven yourself before what God had forgiven you for back on the cross so Paul says our, our attitude. Our attitude makes a difference. And then, and then you go on there in, in the passage where he talks about our attitude, especially in the level of our, of our anger. But then he goes on in verse 28 and he talks about our honesty. Notice he says there in verse 28, he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He wants to remind us that honesty should be something that marks the church. I came upon this writing the other day of, a, of an author. His name is Dan Airely. And, and he talks about his time being a professor. 
And he says this, over the course of many years of teaching, I have noticed there are typically, seems to be a rash of deaths among the students, relatives, at the end of the semester. It happens mostly in the week before final exams and before papers are being due. And guess which one of the relative most often dies? The grandma. He goes on and he quotes another research study and he says this. Research has shown that grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm, 19 times more likely to die before a final exam, Worse, grandmothers of students who are not doing well in class are even higher risk. Students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose grandma than non-failing students. So he goes on and he says, It turns out that the greatest predictor of mortality among senior citizens in our day ends up being their grandchildren's GPA. He said, the moral of all of this is that if you are a grandparent, do not let your grandchild go to college. It'll kill you, especially if he or she is intellectually challenged. (laughs) There's a lot more truth to that than we realize. But getting back to what Paul is trying to talk about here in Ephesians chapter 4, he is saying honesty should be something that marks the church. Now he's talking about in the sense of a thief. He's talking about it here in the sense of a mooch or somebody that is able-bodied or somebody that is right-minded, somebody that can provide for themselves. But instead of providing for themselves, they just sit around and saying, well, give me this and give me that and I want this and I have that. We are at a time right now as a nation that we have over 50% of our population is receiving some type of funding from the government to sustain their lifestyle. Now, some of it is legitimate, and at the same time, there are some of it is illegitimate. But we are hitting, we've already hit that tipping point where over 50% of the population is receiving some type of funding. How far will that continue on? And he is saying there should be this attitude of honesty when it comes to the character of the church, when it comes to the character of the fellowship of believers, there should be an honesty that says, I will do what God has commanded me to do. And one of the things that God commands us to do is to be faithful in our work for the Lord. In other words, we labor for the Lord. Why do we labor for the Lord? Because the Lord has called us to labor. There is nothing wrong or sinful about work. And yet some people think when they go to work, it's all about them. It's all about what I get out of it. It's all about what I benefit from. And it's all about me, 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 me. And we miss the point that when we go and we labor, we are not laboring for an employer. We're not laboring for a boss. We're not laboring for a paycheck. We're not laboring for our own personal benefit. We are laboring for the Lord because we show people by what we do outside of these walls who we are inside of our heart. Gentleman I work with does a little homemade wine brewing he asked me this last week. He said, if I brought you a bottle, would you drink it? I said, no. But let me tell you why. And I went into the whole spiel about my witness. And I just said that I can't find a chapter and verse that says, thou shalt not taste alcohol. But I can tell you that if you walk into Bev's and you see me walking out of Bev's with a case of beer, that's going to influence your opinion about me. I may drink half a beer once a week until it's gone. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's, it, it, it's an impact thing. Now, now you might sit there and go, well, that does, that's not my conviction, Spence. And that's fine. It's between you and God. I'm not your conscience. God is. 
I'm just going to tell you that it's one of those things that when you're at work, people know who you are at work. And there's sometimes that people will go to church or go to work and they'll be a bigger jerk at work and people go, well, I don't know who that person is. And you say, well, you know, he's a deacon at the church. Really? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't know it by the way he talked. I wouldn't know it by the way he behaves. I wouldn't know it by the things that he does after work. I wouldn't know it by the priorities he has or the things that he laughs at or the jokes that he tells. I wouldn't know that. I believe when Paul is talking about our honesty, when he's talking about our attitude when it comes to work, he is saying, go, provide for yourself. Take care of your needs. Do the things that you are supposed to do. He's reminding us that we are laboring for the Lord. So when God gives us time, when he gives us talents, when he gives us resources, they are all meant for us to then give back to the Lord. So in other words, we go and we labor for the Lord so we can give unto the Lord. He says that right there in, the, in that verse. He says, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. See, the difference is, is the thief comes in and takes what isn't his from someone that doesn't want to give it to him. And he just takes it because he thinks that I, I deserve this. And yet what Paul is saying is when it comes to the character of the church. We should have the kind of honesty that we understand that there are needs. Legitimate needs in this world. And why not spend our time, spend our resources, freely give what God gave to us to those that need. Why not have an attitude of charity? Why not have an attitude of benevolence? Why not have an attitude of gracious Giving to other people. You know, sometimes we even come to church and we're a thief with our time. God gave us the time. I didn't give you the time. You didn't give yourself the time. God gave you the time. And yet we try to say, God, this is my time. I'm going to do with my time what I want my time to do. Some people, uh, traditionally, when it comes 12 o'clock, that's when they get out of church. Preacher, I gave you till 12 and now it's 12 and now it's my time. I get out of church. That's not the way it works. It's all God's time. And Paul reminds us that one of our characters as a church is our honesty in that understanding what God has given to us. Understanding that we are now serving and working in the kingdom of God. And recognizing that what God gives us is not for us to hoard or for us to have or to be selfish with. It's so that we can give back to God. So Paul says, I want you to know. I want you to be understanding that you should no longer take what isn't yours. But rather let him labor. Doing honest work. There is nothing wrong with us being honest in our dealings with one another. But then he goes to this last one, we'll be done. He talks about our priorities. Talks about our speech. Talks about our attitudes. Talks about our honesty. And then he talks about our priorities. Now in verse 30 and through 31, he talks about this Holy Spirit. And the way that I understand the way the passage breaks down, he, he makes a statement and then he tells you why the statement matters and then he tells us a compare and contrast. And let me, let me point this out to you. He says there in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now he puts that in there as that as being the objective. That as being the point of these next words that he's going to come in. And he's going to say, why should you not want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Because it's through the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, that we were sealed for the day of redemption. What do you mean, preacher? 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? When you get saved, when you get born again, when you are forgiven and that salvation moment comes upon you, God indwells you with the third person of the Trinity. You are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Why are you indwelt with the Holy Spirit? For guidance, for discernment, for direction, for conviction, for correction. All of these things come into your life. So according to the Bible, if you are born again, a believer, a 
follower of Jesus Christ, you now have the gift of the Holy Spirit inside of you. So Paul says, if you're a believer, don't grieve that spirit inside of you. Why should I care about what the Spirit is saying? Because the Spirit is the mark, the evidence that you are a follower, a believer of Jesus Christ. It is your marking point saying this is who I am. Think about it as a wedding ring, if you will. I wear this wedding ring not because it's something that uh, it, it has some special power that I grow bigger when I wear the wedding ring, even though that has happened. <laughs> That I grow older because I had the wedding ring even though that's happened. No, it's, it's evidence that I am now a committed person. I am now entered into a relationship, a lifelong commitment with, with, with Jaylene. And so when you have that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that's God's mark on you and saying, you are mine. So he says that those of you that have that indwelling of the Holy Spirit... Do not grieve that spirit because that spirit is the mark of your salvation. So then Spence, how then do I grieve the spirit? Well, notice he tells us there in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. He is saying these are the things that you do. These are the things that we do that grieve the Holy Spirit. So how do we show the priority of the Spirit to those around us? By the position of the Spirit in our lives. If my, if the Holy Spirit is the priority, that that is what I'm to be following, listening to, Yielding to in my life. And if God's spirit in me has the position that it should have. Then I should say anything that draws me away. Anything that brings dishonor to. Or anything that acts in contrast to or contradiction to. I should get away from it. So that's what he says there in verse 31. The bitterness, the wrath, the anger, the clamor, the slander. Get rid of it along with the malice. Those things do not, do not. Feed the Spirit. Do not worship the Spirit. Do not lead you to say, this is what it looks like to be indwelt and led by the Holy Spirit. Those are the things that tarnish the Spirit. And the purity of the Spirit should be a priority in our lives. I don't want there to be anything that keeps me from listening to what God wants me to do. I don't want anything to be hindering me from hearing God's direction for my life. I don't want to be hearing anything that keeps me from following after him. I can't remember what year it was, but Tucker graduated basic boot camp out there in San Diego with the Marine Corps. I think I was 19 years old and we loaded up as a family and dad was driving one vehicle and I was driving another vehicle and we drove straight from uh, Wilson, Oklahoma, straight to California. And I'd driven all night long and there I am driving and we get, I think it's down into Los Angeles and we crest, seems like this hill, my memory's a little bit faded, but we crest this hill and it seems like there's 30 lanes going in one direction. And cars are everywhere. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's bumper to bumper, they're all doing like 70 miles an hour and we crest that hill and I thought, whoa. Because they don't have that kind of stuff here in central Oklahoma. And I, I guarantee you I've been sheltered, so I really wasn't sure what to expect. And I see that, and I was just like, I turned the radio off. <laughs> I told people in the car, everybody in the vehicle, I said, be quiet. Because <laughs> I got to focus. 
because I've watched NASCAR on television and it's like I'm getting to live it today. And so I need all the attention I can have. I didn't want to have anything distracting me. I didn't want to have anything keep me from being able to be focused on what I was focused on. So Paul says when it comes to our priorities as a Christian, we need to understand that our priorities should be the Holy Spirit of God should be everything in our lives, should be the first in our lives, should be the voice in our lives, should be the guidance in our lives, should be the direction in our lives. And so we should make sure that those things that keep us from being able to uh, be as yielded to the Spirit as possible, we get rid of those. We don't want to do anything that might grieve the Holy Spirit. So then he goes on in verse 32, and he says, because the priority of the Spirit is that, that, to that place in our lives, this is what we do. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God's mark in you that you belong to him. This is how you grieve the Holy Spirit. And this is how you do not grieve the Holy Spirit. But yet when the world looks at the church today, do they see the church that has that kind of priority that says, I want to do everything I can to put myself in a position to hear from God, to follow after God, to be led by God, to be directed by God? Or do people have the priorities of this world and say that everything else comes First, so the prioritize money, the prioritize hobbies, the prioritize their desires, the prioritize themselves, the prioritize their family, the prioritize relationships, the prioritize a lot of other things, but they won't prioritize the Holy Spirit. And yet, we wonder why our churches seem to be powerless, and why we always seem to be dry. And we always seem to be falling from one state of failure to another state of failure. And we always wonder why we can't seem to be content with anything. And we wonder why God isn't working. We wonder why God isn't moving. And we wonder why we feel so distant. And we wonder why there's nothing, despite what we try to do, of all the things in this world, there's nothing that we can fill that void that satisfies the same as those glimmers, those flickers of moments that we had when God filled it. I submit to you this morning, it's because so many times we're not prioritizing the Holy Spirit. We don't prioritize the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're not prioritizing the effect and the work of the Holy Spirit in our faith and in our practice because we're prioritizing everything else. And Paul wants us to know that one of the characters that the world is looking at is what we prioritize. And when they see we prioritize budgets and buildings and bodies over the effectual power of the Holy Spirit working amongst a congregation, they see that our priorities are the same of that of the business world and they say oh we're not going to be involved with that gimmick because they're not truly sold out to God so how do we measure how do we measure to see if our character is where it's supposed to be how do we measure to see if we're growing in our faith on a regular basis well there's three statements I put down there for you in the body of your notes based upon what we've looked at this morning the first one that I want to mention to you is this our actions define our character more than our intentions our actions define our character more than our intentions so you can say oh you know what preacher I need to read my bible more I need to pray more I need to go to church more I need to do this more I need to do that but 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 and that is great and I'm not trying to ridicule you or make fun of you about that I'm just telling you that our actions define our character more than our intentions and it's not just that but our character follows our spiritual condition sometimes people think that they can feel their way into an action 
And I'm going to tell you right now, I have felt like I need to get up and go exercise a lot. But we get it backwards because we think that we can feel our ways into action when the reality is, is we act our ways into feelings. And we get that backwards. And so, so many times we think that, you know what, if I will just pray more, then my character will improve. You know what? When we practice and we discipline ourselves in the spiritual disciplines, what happens is our spiritual condition begins to improve. It begins to get better. Went to a chiropractor this week. And I'm always skeptical of anybody that's taking my money for something that I can't see what I get back in return. And he, one of the things he says, well, we may not be able to take care of it in one session. You may have to come back. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I already knew that was coming. I already knew I'm on the hook for at least a good six-month payment plan. I mean, I understand how this thing works. But it's one of those things that he says, listen, if you want your condition to improve, it may not be a quick fix. It may not be a simple thing. It may not be a fast food remedy. You may need to come back and invest time and effort in improving yourself over a period of time. And sometimes we think we get in a spot, we get in a pickle. I'm going to open my Bible. I'm going to read my Bible today and if God doesn't answer my question or my problem today therefore I have a right and a privilege to go do something else and maybe God says the answer comes over time the answer comes over commitment, the answer comes over intentionality in my word the third reason I think we can measure our growth the third way I think we can measure our growth we understand that the world is watching our character The world is watching our characters. When it comes to us as a life of a church, we need to be asking ourselves, what does the world see? What does the world see in us? Does does the world see a church that is proclaiming authentically who Jesus is and the reason for this season? Do they see a church that is living like they talk about on Sunday morning the same way on Tuesday afternoon? Do they see a church that is uh, that our words point to Jesus, our attitudes point to Jesus, our honesty and our dealings with one another points to Jesus? Do they see a church that is living for him? It was back in 2018. A young man name of Malman Sarhan. He was going through the zoo there in Cairo. In fact, it's called the Cairo International Garden Municipal Park. And he's wandering through this zoo and he gets to the zebra enclosure. And he pauses for a second because he looks at these zebras and something didn't quite look right. You put that up there for me, Mark. This is him and he's posed... With the enclosure. The reason why he took the picture. And the reason why he put this picture on Facebook. Was because he said. That's not a zebra. I don't know about you. But it's got stripes. (laughs) Other people said that's not a zebra. It's a donkey. Well, how can you be so certain? How can you be so sure? So they contacted a veterinarian. The veterinarian said when it comes to zebras, usually zebra snouts are completely black instead of just partially black. A lot of times their stripes are a little more uniform, a little more symmetric, and normally they don't have what looks like a paint smudge on his cheek. <laughs> so according to some, it was a donkey painted <laughs> to look like a zebra. 
Well, you got the spokesperson for the zoo on a uh, interview over the phone, and the spokesperson on the interview over the phone uh, was adamant, they adamantly saying, "No, those are actually zebras." The problem is, is was back in 2009, a similar situation came up there in uh, Gaza, where the zoo had actually taken donkeys because of an embargo. They couldn't actually get real zebras because of Israel and some conflict going on in Israel. So they actually took donkeys, painted them with stripes, put them in there as zebras, and said, "Ha!" Except the public caught on to it and so back so you fast forward now to 2018 this young man's walking through the zoo sees this and goes is that a donkey or is that a zebra and you may be thinking well Spence what is your point <laughs> I think people are looking at the church and they're saying is that a Christian or is that not a Christian is that what it looks like to be a Christian or not. And there's lots of things that the world is looking at and saying, I thought they were supposed to be a Christian. But if they're supposed to be a Christian, then shouldn't they act like this? Shouldn't they behave like this? Shouldn't they not do these things? Shouldn't they do these things? If that is who they are supposed to be, then shouldn't they look like this? And I wonder how many people we have in the church today that are donkeys that put on their stripes to come to church so they look like a zebra. And they don't think that God can tell the difference. I want to plead with you this morning. When you think about where you stand before God, especially where you stand with God for an eternity. I am under no misconception to think that every single one of us in this room are saved. Statistically speaking, there's some of us in this room that you may come this morning painted like a zebra, but you're really lost. This morning, the most, thing, the, the most beneficial thing that you can do and for your life is to admit you're a sinner, confess your sin to Jesus Christ, cry out for forgiveness, and for the day to be a day of salvation for you. Maybe some of you that you know that once upon a time back in your life you make a decision. I'm not trying to question your salvation, but the fact is that from that moment to now, there's been a lot of life that hasn't reflected Christ. You might have got up this morning and you might have had to straighten up your stripes because your stripes have become dingy. Your stripes have become marred. Your stripes have been hard to understand because quite frankly, you've walked in a lot of different ways not following after Jesus. And you are sitting here this morning and you're saying, I know I have things to get right, but you know what? I'm just going to do it later. And I'm just going to ask, why do you think that you have later? You might be here this morning and you might be struggling with bitterness or anger, guilt, Rebellion, attitudes, I, I don't know what it is. Or maybe, if you were to be honest with me and yourself and to God, your priorities are a little bit out of tune. And this morning you were here, and your stripes aren't what they should be. I want to give you an opportunity to get right with God this morning. Would you bow your heads with me?